Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. These days, many theoretical physicists believe that time is not a truly basic concept, that it somehow emerges out of the underlying fundamental laws of physics that they are seeking to uncover which, in turn, naturally applies that those very laws are time-independent, that they are fixed and never-changing, beyond time, as it were. Perimeter Institute theoretical physicist Lee Smolin, however, strongly disagrees. For him, time is more fundamental than the laws of physics themselves, so much so, in fact, that he believes that these very laws can change. But he doesn't just state that. He builds a theoretical framework around how exactly the laws might evolve, a mechanism, if you will. And what's more, he then posits that all of this highly abstract framework has a direct relevance to your everyday life. So today we're going to talk about time. And uh, as it happens, by some strange coincidence, you've just written a book about that, Time Reborn. And the main thesis, the main passion, the main claim of the book is your conviction that time is real, the reality of time, that you say uh, you, you believe as strongly as anyone can believe anything in science that time is real, or words to that effect. That's, uh, uh, those, that's pretty good, because okay. those are actually the words I use. Okay. This is something that I think most people who are not scientists, who are not physicists, who, who are not philosophers, think, well, this is an obvious thing. Time is real. I, I, I encounter time all the time. So what, let's just start off at the very beginning and tell me what you mean by that. Well, one thing I mean is that anything that's real is real in the present moment, which is one of a succession of moments. And anything that is true is true about the present moment and only about the present moment. And I think that most people do not believe that. Most people believe that there is behind the passage of 
experience behind the, the veil of experience, as it's sometimes called, there's some true reality which is timeless, which is outside of time. Right. And it's true that most people, when you are, they will say, of course, time is real, I experience time, I'm getting older, etc. Um, but most people, when you ask them what's really true, will talk about mathematics or the religious faith. Right, morality, something that's yes. something that is timeless. Yes, there's this framework that that exists outside of outside of space, even, but outside of time. That's what we're talking about right, right. at the moment. And 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 most physicists will say that among the things that are true outside of time, timelessly, are the laws of nature. Right. So I want to. I'm going to ask you in a second your uh, particular evolution, as it were, as to how you how you came to the views that you have now. But maybe I should preface this by saying um, this is a, a discussion that you think resonates strongly with everyone, hence you're mm. writing a popular book, um, that you think is, is of import to, uh, to everyone. But your particular beliefs and your convictions were arrived at through science. This is not merely a right. philosophical discussion or idea. I uh, don't, don't mean to be impugning philosophers, but um, this, is, this is based upon your particular scientific evolution yes. and, and, and based upon what you perceive to be important scientific ideas. Yes. And you yourself had a very different view. So maybe you can describe your particular evolution as to, as to how you came to the, to the stage of, uh, of believing in the uh, in the reality of time as fervently as you do. So when I was a teenager, I was seduced into the idea that behind the complications and messiness of life and the world as we experience it, there was a more beautiful and more true reality, which was capturable in mathematics and mathematical equations. That's the standard physics line, yes, which, is, yes. uh, which is out there. And I was seduced into that by a writing of Einstein called his autobiographical notes, which I read when I was 17, one night, one spring night, on a porch um, in, my, in my parents' house. And, um, and I was completely caught by that, because I was in the typical teenage angst. Right. And that idea just grabbed me that, yes, there is a timeless truth, it all makes sense, um, there is a beauty behind the world, and it's captured in the laws of nature. Um, and so this was an idea which, uh, not only intellectually, but on a, on a personal, maybe even emotional level, resonated with it you. It resonated me, with me very strongly, yeah, sure. Right. Sure. And, um, and it was at that same moment, that same evening, that I decided to do physics, to become a physicist. Wow, this was all one night. In a, that was all in one night, wow. yeah. Whereas before that, I'd wanted to be various things, but a rock and roll musician or a fiction writer or an architect was the most recent. Thing. You never quite gave up on the whole rock and roll thing, though. I mean, oh, I have you, completely given up on it. Oh yeah, you gave up on it because yeah. I always thought that in your, at least in your fantasy world, you you went back and forth on that a little bit. But no, my fantasy world is not about okay. rock, playing rock and roll. We're not going to get into what my fantasy world is about now, but. Okay, sorry, sorry for distracting you. So, so there was this, there was this, uh, this epiphany during mm -hmm. this particular evening. You read, uh, you I read Einstein's reflections, uh, and and you said, "This is what I want to do. This is what I want to become." And you were seventeen. You said at yes. the time. And then what happened? Well, I was a high school dropout. Um, so, but I had studied a lot of mathematics. So I was able 
Well, maybe let me back up just a little bit. I, why was I reading that? I was reading that because I had wanted to be an architect. I was very wowed by having met Buckminster Fuller. And so why did you drop out of high school if you wanted to be an architect? That's not the usual route to be. Because I was a rebel and I went to uh, alternative high school. And at the alternative high school, they said, um, we view ourselves as um, people who will help you find the knowledge you're looking for out somewhere in the community. So our role is to provide tools for you to go into the community and find the knowledge that you seek. That is alternative. Yeah. And I thought about that for a day, and I thought the knowledge I seek is really in the university. So, <laughs> so see ya. <laughs> basically. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And um, I so have, I, just, I have a friend of mine, just, just out of curiosity, who, who, uh, who was told, uh, this is just, just an anecdote, it reminded me of this when you were talking. Um, he was raised in the, in the Catholic faith, and he was told that he, he had to give up something very important for Lent. You know, that's, that's the Catholic tradition. So he, he, he gave up um, Catholicism. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it was something like that. So, so anyway, um, so I just started attending courses at the university. You know, my mother was a professor of English, so I was able just to drop in and start attending courses. Right. Um, so I, I guess I was an unusual sort of dropout, but nonetheless, um, I still had no, I'd never taken a physics course. I was interested in architecture, and my interest in architecture um, was started with Buckminster Fuller and his geodesic domes, and I had wondered how, whether you can stretch the domes and make uh, a structure out of any kind of surface that you wanted. Right. And because of that, I had studied differential geometry or tensor calculus. So I had gotten ahead of myself in mathematics, even though I wasn't interested in science. Wow. And you said you had met Buckminster Fuller? Or, I had or? met Buckminster Fuller. And that, that presumably that sparked your interest in, yes, in, yes. in these things. And then you studied I had arranged, differential I had arranged for him to come visit the high school where I was. Where, where you were briefly enrolled. <laughs> no, no, no. That was a different high school. That was okay. two years before that. Okay. Where I was on, you know, a, uh, one of a group of kids who invited people to speak at the high school, and I invited them. That's another story. You know, in all these conversations, we, we, it's, it's shocking to me. We've never actually, I never, I guess I should have asked you more questions. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so, um, so and, and part of my rebellion in school had been that I had done very badly in grades, so I had been um, not passed to go into the college placement courses in math and English and so forth. And a friend of my parents, who was a mathematician, had arranged for me to go to night school and take, and take the usual high school program in the summer okay. and start calculus. So I was several years ahead of myself in mathematics, just out of a sense of proving them wrong. In right, the, right. So, so I was studying differential geometry, and every book that I studied um, particularly, I remember Sinjin Schild, if you know that book, yeah, yeah, sure. had a chapter in the back about general relativity. So I started to get interested in general relativity. So I went to the public library and got this autobiographical notes of Einstein out. It's in a volume called Albert Einstein, Philosopher, Scientist, of essays about him, right. including that. And that's what happened. I read it one night. I was supposed to have a date, but the girl stood me up, and I had nothing else to do, so I found this book in my pile. I read it. And I just got the sense, oh, I want to do that. And so architecture just was just became passe. You just you said that, right. that interesting, but now I'm now I'm going to be a physicist. Right. 
Right. So I had to get myself into college and actually to scratch that, we're, we're just going to go back a frame. I was already admitted to college on the basis of the architecture. Oh, really? I had right. talked my way, I had applied to Hampshire right. College and talked my way into it, even though they rejected me twice the third time. I had talked my way in. Okay, so you got in, and then, and then you said you, wanted, you don't want to do that anymore. Then, then, then I was going to do, then I thought I wanted to do physics. Right. And this mathematician gave me a very good piece of advice, an essential piece of advice, which is that you can't learn physics on your own. Because I actually went to him and said, why don't I just get a lot of books? Right. And he said, you can't do that. Because the actual problem-solving skills of being a physicist has to be beaten into you. And you have to have teachers, and you have to have mentors. You can't learn this stuff from books. And he was absolutely right. Right. So I started thinking about where should I go. So for example, I applied to MIT, because I'd heard that MIT was where you go if you wanted to be a physicist. It's a good place. And, uh, and I was on my way to MIT to interview when I passed Hampshire College, where I'd been accepted to study uh, architecture. architecture. <laughs> And, and I was traveling with my girlfriend, who was also interviewing, and while she was interviewing... Was this the same girlfriend that stood you up, by the way? No, that was a different was girlfriend. A different... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We're not going to get into all that, but anyway... You brought it up. Anyway, anyway, I thought, while I'm here, let me see if there are any physicists here at Hampshire College. Right. So I went wandering into the science building and found this guy called Herb Bernstein, who had just showed up. He became, was, he became your mentor. Right? And he became my mentor, and we spent the afternoon talking. Huh. And I would just had this sense that this guy could be my teacher. I had been told I had to have a teacher. And here he was. And here he was. So we, so we never went to Boston. I just said, okay, here, uh, here I'm going. And um, no, because Herb um, is, a great, is a great pedagogue on a one-to-one -one level. And he, so he had asked me a few questions, what I'm interested in, and I told him that I was, had been reading about differential geometry and general relativity. And he pretended not to know anything about relativity theory. And he said, oh, I don't know anything about relativity theory. Well, he wanted to know what you, what you learned or what yeah, you knew. Yeah, he said, so explain it to me. Right. So he really did know what he was doing. Yeah. He was quite a good pedagogue. Yeah. And of course, I flubbed it. And in the course of explaining it to him, I realized I didn't understand it at all. Right. Um, Very Socratic. Anyway, let, let, let's, let's move on a little bit, yeah. because uh, this was actually extremely interesting to me, but uh, I, I want to I have a, a clearer progression. You've become a physicist, right. and you still believe very fervently um, in the, the classic view, this view of the timeless laws. Our job as theoretical physicists are, is to find the, uh, the one governing rule formula that... that, that the equation that, that's behind everything. Right. The, 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 the equation that we want to put on a t-shirt, the theory of everything, right. these timeless laws, or the, this timeless law, this one big super unified law. That... Tom Stoppard in Arcadia has this character, Thomasina, right. who's a, a very smart young woman. She's studying mathematics, and she has a line where she says, I won't get it exactly right. She says, it is mentioned in your book, though. It is mentioned, yes. <laughs> she, she says that um, there must be an equation which if you knew it, you could predict every little thing that would happen, every little motion of every atom, of every particle. And even if it would be too complicated to write that equation down... In practice. In practice, 
it's as if you could, because it means that the future is completely determined from the present, mm. um, by that equation. That's, she puts it, well, Tom Stoddard puts it much better than that. But that vision um, seduced me completely. Then later, I got in even deeper when I started to work on quantum gravity. I learned about the Wheeler-DeWitt equation. And in the Wheeler-DeWitt equation, which is supposed to be that equation in a world governed by quantum mechanics and general relativity right. at the level of the whole universe as a whole, this is the application of quantum mechanics to the universe as a whole, time disappears completely. It's not, in Newton's laws, time exists, but the future is completely determined from the present and the present is completely determined by the past, but there's still a parameter, T, in the equations, which is a very weak form of time, but nonetheless, there, there is a meaning to time in Newton. Um, in the Wheel of DeWitt equation, there's no meaning at all. The time completely disappears from the equations. You have completely timeless equations. But even if we don't, so uh, I'm happy to go there, but even if we don't go there, again, looking from a more popular uh, view, there is this notion that there is this law. There is this overriding right. law which governs the way everything acts in the physical world. And it is the job of the physicist to find out what this particular law is. And this law is, is outside of space and time because it's, it's, it's just out there. It's eternal. Yes. It's constant. It's the one thing that we're trying to figure out as, as scientists, as physicists. And this dream which seduced you not only has seduced hundreds, thousands of, uh, of theoretical physicists and scientists over, over the ages, uh, but continues to. This is yes. a very prevalent, popular view, which, which still, I think, reigns supreme. And, and when you talk about the fact that you believe now in something that's quite different, um, you, you explicitly say, many of my colleagues do believe in this idea of, of uh, that, that time is an illusion, mm -hmm. that time is not real. Um, and I used to believe this as well. I used to believe in things outside yeah. of this. And now I have uh, come to believe something else. So let's get back to that trajectory yeah. again. Yeah. And let's move towards how you, how you started changing your own view about, uh, about the role of time and the reality of time. So there are two lines of thought that let me change my view. Okay. One of them, was the difficulty of realizing the program of starting with this timeless law for quantum mechanics unified with general relativity and getting our universe to emerge from it with time even in the weak sense that there is time in general relativity or in Newton's laws, that okay. things evolve in time. Um, and there are technical problems but something that I've come to believe just as a practicing physicist is that when physicists say it's difficult to do X, what we really mean is we have no idea whether we can do it or not. Sure. Well, isn't there this, this thing where something is either, is either impossible or, or potentially impossible or trivial, right? If right. it's been done, it's trivial and otherwise... Uh, well, difficult. in between, there are a few things which are elegant. Okay. <laughs> but... Um, but if a problem has been around for a long time as a technical problem for decades, and we seem to be no close, closer to solving it, in spite of very smart people going at it technically in lots of different ways, um, then maybe it's just wrongly posed or not true. And so I began to think maybe the fact that it's so hard to get 
space and time to, quote, emerge from these timeless laws um, is trying to tell us something. So that was, the, that was one of them. And when did you start getting the first glimmers of this? Uh, how, how, how far into your career were you starting to think along these lines when you started? So, I think the first time, somewhere in the 90s, and um, very important for my thinking about that whole issue was, is my friendship with Julian Barber. Because Julian um, has been kind of my philosophical guru or mentor in the philosophy of relationalism, in space and time, whatever they are, are aspects of relationships in the world. And he developed relationalism in a particular direction, which led to a, a completely timeless view of the world. And I take Julian very seriously, but my sense that that vision that he had and other people had wasn't being realized on a technical level. Um, because I respect Julian so much, it was, it was a lot of concern. So it was the interaction with Julian that led me to the so kind of the diversion. Quite, quite strongly in this. But in one direction and then in the, in the other, so having Julian to talk with and react against help me move away from him, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure. And, um, so, and that was, I mean, I remember so, I mean, somewhere in the mid-90s, I remember sitting in State College at Penn State one day with Julian and a couple of other people and talking about this and my feeling beginning to formulate the sort of view on the other side. Okay. Um, the other line of thought had to do with a completely different question, which is why are the laws of nature what they are and not different? Right. And that is another aspect of sort of the great vision of Newton and Einstein, that not only should there be an equation which describes everything which is timeless, which governs the whole universe, but that equation should be, in a sense, unique. There should be only one way for the universe to be. Um, Einstein's, one of Einstein's famous phrases is the thing I've always been interested in is whether God had any choice about the creation of the universe. Right. And implicit in that is Einstein's belief that there was no choice. Sure. That's what he's looking for, that he's looking for sufficient constraints that it couldn't be anything other than what it actually is. Right. And, and in my generation of, of theorists, there was a belief that the more we put into the theory, the more unified we made our theory, the more constrained it would be. Right. So we had, we're the generation after the formulation of the standard model of particle physics, which unified the weak electromagnetic and strong interactions, although in a very loose way. And, and we came again after people tried to tighten up that unification, what was called the grand unification, um, of which there were beautiful ideas for, but no experimental confirmation of. And then there was the idea that we had to go forward to a unification with gravity as well to unify all the forces within one quantum theory. Right. And the belief was that the more unified, the more constrained, so that something that had, that w had all the phenomena of nature in it would be unique. And I was very, very struck by the development of string theory in the middle 80s which many of us believed, and many people still believe, I believed for a year or two, um, might be, well, I believed for a year or two then, in 84, 85, 86, and then intermittently since then a few times. 
that string theory was really the solution, was really the... But, but let me interject for a bit, because there, there, there's, there are two different aspects to this that you've delineated. One is the answer, the law, the final laws. The, can we get this equation that we're going to put on a t-shirt, or can we get the, 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 the formalism which unifies all the things that need to be done, which can be a complete description, a completely accurate description of reality down to its fundamental level that can unify quantum mechanics and general relativity, that can, that can, uh, that, that can be the, a complete accurate depiction of, of the laws of nature. And then there's, then there's another question that you, you talked about right now, um, which was, well, why is it this particular representation? Why is it, why, why is it this law or this particular representation right. rather, than, rather right. than that? And they're two, two very different things. Now, now, you're talking just now about how the, the hope, Einstein's great hope was, well, the reason you can say to yourself, well, it has to be this way because it can't conceivably be anything else. It's right. so constrained that the, the only way you can possibly put these things together or the only way you can have a mathematical framework which describes something um, is is this is the the one singular solution that we have to everything, and that's that's the great goal. But they are conceptually two very different. They things. are different, yeah, sure. But but just to take what what happened with the second one, so the string theory was invented. Um, it was promoted to a theory of unification, including gravity, in the early eighties. There was a big development in nineteen eighty four that it seemed like they were mathematically consistent, at least to a certain level of approximation that had never been achieved before. And there was reason to believe at the beginning that that was a unique unification. Very quickly that unraveled. Right. And there were two steps to the unraveling that went to, um, on the order of 100,000 different versions, this had to do with how the extra dimensions are twisted up and made to be very small. And then in 86, Andy Strominger, who was a friend of mine, found that there were vast numbers of consistent, equally consistent string theories. And I remember Andy said to me that it would be uninteresting to even try to find which one describes nature, because there are so many is bound to be just by coincidence one that describes nature, or many even that describe nature, the approximation we saw. So he didn't think it was interesting to develop that. And he was very concerned that the ability to predict future experiments had broken down, because if there are vast numbers of versions which agree with what we know so far, then there are going to be many different future experimental possible results for example, the, where the Higgs would have been at the LHC, which was, mm. of course, has recently been finally found, what the extension beyond the standard model would be. And since there would be so many different versions available, the theory wouldn't have any predictive power. But, and but let, let me okay, just, go, go ahead. Because I can say what comes from there in a sentence. Um, that crisis of here's a unified theory, but it comes in a vast, Number of, number, of number of different possibilities, so that it's become non-predictive, to me was a crisis. And the solution to the crisis that I happened on over the next few years after that, and which I'm still convinced, and which really the point of the present book is to refine and sharpen the argument for, is that the only way to understand how the laws of nature were chosen 
that is scientific that could lead to experiments that could verify the explanation or falsify the explanation is if the laws of nature are the result of evolution over time. That's the big idea. Mm. And if the laws are the result of evolution in time, then time is prior to the laws, because if laws can change in time, then time is something more fundamental. Right. It doesn't emerge from a particular law. And that leads me to the view that time really is so deep, is so fundamental, that it's even prior to the regularities that we characterize as laws of nature. So I want to go through that a little bit slower. I want to parse that okay. a little bit if I can. Um, but before I do, I want to mention something that you mentioned in your book, which uh, I thought was quite interesting, and we had had a conversation previously about this, um, which was something that Feynman said. So, um, again, as we had talked about, the, the prevailing view for a very, very long time is that it's the job of, of a physicist to find out what the laws of nature are. Right. And maybe there is one law, maybe there are seven laws. We, 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 we have this belief in being able to unify things. It's worked very well over, uh, uh, over the centuries, but nobody's really sure what it is. But our job as theoretical physicists are t is rather to try to, um, to try to find out what those laws of nature are. Right. And then there's the second question of, well, why is the law the way that it happens to be? And there was this, um, and, and the reason I keep mentioning this is I think um, this is essential to this idea of evolution that you were talking about and the primacy of time and so forth. But there was this fascinating anecdote when, when Feynman was being interviewed right. and, and somebody asked him this, this very question. And, and what, was his, what was his response to that? Do you remember? Roughly. Of course, Feynman is so articulate in his Brooklynese uh, <laughs> fake and formal way, but um, he says something like, there is no, usually we just say, here are the laws of nature, here they are, that's it, but we never ask, how do we get that way in time? How do they come to be the laws of nature? All the other sciences have historical aspects, right. and maybe physics also has a historical aspect. He Maybe. pauses there for a second. He's... Yes, yes. And, and the interviewer says to him, how do you approach that question? Right. And he says, I have no idea. And then the interview <laughs> moves on. And, um, and there, there are actually a number of intimations or suggestions. Dirac has a beautiful quote. And this is very much against, I think, the standard understanding of Dirac as a Platonist and as somebody who did physics by looking for mathematical beauty. But he says explicitly in an essay um, that maybe the laws of nature at, earlier in the universe were not the same laws as they are now. Right. And, um, and then, of course, um, the philosopher um, Peirce, the great founder of American pragmatism. Um, this is Charles Sanders Charles Peirce. Sanders Peirce. Right. Um, said in 1893, and I think this reflected the influence of Darwin, very clearly what I just said, but let me sort of try, I've used this quote so often, let, let, me, let me see if I can run an approximate version of it. He says, it's not enough to say what the laws of nature are to give the laws, because the laws demand explanation. In fact, nothing is more in need of an explanation as a statement of what the laws are. Right. 
So, so, so that's, that's great. Let me just back up again. For someone who doesn't know anything about physics and they say, what are these guys talking about? They're talking about this philosopher from this time, somebody from the 19th century, someone from the 20th century, uh, Feynman, they're throwing all these names around. But I think that's a, that's a very compelling idea that on the one hand, you have people that say, our job is to figure out the law of nature. The law of nature is X. Here it is. I can put it here. I can put it on a T-shirt. I can, I can not put it on a T-shirt. Maybe there are four of them. Maybe there are 10 of them. Maybe there's one of them. And somebody else says, well, hang on. If that's, the, if that's it, if that's the law, out of all the possibilities that could have been the law, if there's anything that's crying out for some sort of an overall explanation, it's that. That seems yes, extremely mysterious. Yes. Why that and not something else? And then this notion that there has to be some way of looking at, at the laws having evolved, either from possible worlds or, 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 or from real worlds or from our world, into what it is today. There's this notion that, 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 that if you're going to explain the law, you have to look at things in terms of an evolutionary perspective. Yes. And, and that's, a, that's a key uh, driving factor for you. And that was, a, I, I guess, a, a view that you, you came to view that is quite different from that of your colleagues. From, from some of my colleagues. And so, but I came to it in two stages. I mean, my first response to the provocation from Andy Strominger was to invent a scenario for laws to evolve, which was analogous to natural selection. And that's what my first book was about, Life right. of the Cosmos. Right. I want to get to that in a, in a that's, bit. That, that scenario is cosmological natural selection. Right. And, um, and that was... You know, I was thinking about that in the late 80s and early 90s. The paper was published in 92. Um, and then I wrote the book about it. And then I put it aside, really. And um, didn't, I mean, I've come back and developed some of the predictions and seen how the astronomers are doing with some of the predictions of cosmological natural selection. But I didn't think deeply of it for a long time. Um, and then... I had a provocation from a philosopher, Roberto Mangibera Unger, mm -hmm. um, who I was put together with by a mutual friend, Drew, Drusilla Cornell, who is also a, a law professor, professor of law. And Roberto Unger is a philosopher, but he makes his living as a professor of law at Harvard. Right. Um, and, um, and Roberto and I came together serendipitously, and we had a conversation in his office and discovered we had a mutual interest in the idea that the laws of nature may have evolved in time. Now, this is interesting to me because he's a professor of law. He's a political and, and, and also a politician. You, you mentioned he is a, before. Yes, he is a politician he's, he's in Brazilian, Brazil. I, I believe. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's curious to me that he, he would be thinking about, passionate about, motivated to, to address issues that, of, of cosmology, of, of, uh, of physics. Um, however, that's... So, so, continue. so, and, and uh, Roberta's story, how he got there, is another story, and I only understand it approximately. But in any case, when we talked, he was very provocative, and basically, to put into a few words what his message was for me, it was, you've been speculating about the evolution of laws, but you haven't gone deeply. I hadn't gone deeply to think about what the implication of that is for our understanding of time. Hmm. And since, of course, my real professional specialty is quantum gravity, and the nature of time is a big question, is the big open question. How does time emerge from timeless Euler-DeWitt equations, from timeless laws, right. etc.? Um, 
that was um, very provocative. Here was something that I was supposed to have thought a lot about, and I hadn't really thought that the idea of cosmological natural selection and taking seriously the idea that laws are explained by their having evolved in time might affect my thinking about time in the sense of how, how time emerges from quantum theory and relativity being unified. So you had and, thought about evolving laws, obviously, right, through but, cosmological natural selection, but you hadn't thought more generally about this idea of... Uh, not in a sustained way. And, and what I realized is that there was a challenge there. Now, I had already started to be skeptical that, as I mentioned before, that um, that time could emerge from the time, completely timeless scenario of Julian Barber and quantum cosmology. But, um, but I hadn't really put that worry about the nature of time and time maybe having to be more real than it is in conventional quantum cosmology, together with the need for a time so fundamental that it's more fundamental than laws. And it was really Roberto's provocation that... No. So a time more fundamental that it's more fundamental than laws, and, and this again gets back to this idea that Pierce mentioned, right? This notion yeah. of evolution. If, if, if something is going to evolve, if you have to look at things from an evolutionary perspective, then clearly it's changing beforehand, and so it, it has some level of primacy, right? Is that, right. Is, is that right. that's the way to look right. at it? So then um, Roberto and I started working together, this is five or six years ago, on discussing um, the implications of the idea that laws of nature evolve and time is really real. And this project with Roberto, which is resulting in an academic publication, was really the impetus for me to think much more deeply about the nature of time and to come to the views that are in Time Reborn. Okay. I, I, I want to ask you um, a little bit about um, you had talked a little bit about some of the problems in physics and Andy Strominger and the landscape and, and the beginnings of this notion of so many possibilities, which of course got worse and worse and worse. Um, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about another, related to that, another aspect uh, which seemed to me from, from reading your book to be, to be motivating, motivating you. And this is what you and Roberto called the, the cosmological fallacy and this notion that it, I mean, it seems to me this is a key aspect of, of relationalism yes, that, yes. that you talk yes. about. Um, and that if one is going to try to, let me see if I can express your views. You tell me where I'm, okay, where I'm going wrong. Good. Okay. So, um, again, if we look throughout the history of physics, of being able to develop equations to describe systems, uh, the way it seems to be done is you, you look at closed systems, you look at separate systems, you look at idealized situations, and you study them from afar. How does this, study them from outside of the system. How does the system actually evolve? Oh, here's a system and here's another system. How do they fit together? How can we develop a, a description of that particular framework in a law-like way? And we use mathematics to be able to do that, and we match this system with another system, and we're able to, to, to make some universal statement about what would happen if we would get this, and we would match it over to that. Um, and, and as we're describing this situation, we're always looking at it from this exterior perspective of, of mm -hmm. ourselves being outside of these, these right. systems that we're measuring. But if we're going to attempt to answer fundamental questions with respect to cosmology, 
if we're going to have some comprehensive statement about the universe, then we have a problem insofar as that's that whole framework, that whole way of approaching the problem to be able to get a comprehensive uh, understanding of what's going on simply doesn't work because there is nothing outside. We can't possibly take that, that, that methodology, which has worked so well, and apply it to the entire universe because by definition, the entire universe is everything, including ourselves, and we can't step outside the system. Yeah. So we have to think about ways in which we can describe how the laws came to be and what the laws are simply internally, simply by being yes, inside yes, of this yes, particular yes. system. Um, and, and that seems like, on the one hand, uh, an obvious statement when one thinks about it. But on the other hand, there seem to be lots of examples of people who don't fully appreciate that, uh, even, even at the realm of, of practicing scientists today. Well, I think very few appreciate it. And so the way that I would put the point is that there's a framework for laws, which is very successful, framework for laws of physics, developed by Newton, which is highly successful, and in which there are equations to describe, at least to some degree of approximation, how an isolated system evolves. And these are always meaningful, that is, they always can be connected with experiment, with predictions right. of experiment, in a context in which we have an isolated system, and the experimenter is outside the isolated system, and also, the experimenter's clock is outside the isolated system. Okay, right. So we're, Which is very important, we're, obviously, to yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. So what we mean by time is time is registered in a clock on the wall and um, not inside the system being developed. And what we call the cosmological fallacy is the idea that to describe the whole universe, you just scale up the methodology that we need to describe small parts of the universe. Right. And I suspect that this is very generally true, that is, it's not just in physics, but there are probably many instances in social science, in psychology, um, in biology, where um, one has a methodology to describe a small part of a system, and it would be mistaken, although people in those domains probably already know this, that it would be mistaken to take the same method and apply it to a whole system. Well, I'm, I'm speculating, of course, but my guess would be that one of the reasons why your, your colleague and collaborator, Roberto Unger, who is looking at the, the laws that govern societies and the laws that, that, that apply in a political, social context, sees some parallels because it, one, one can imagine that the argument by analogy holds that if you're trying to understand the way societies should be structured and what the law-like nature of society is, um, well, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to try to get completely outside of that society. That's what it is. It is the people and the constituents in that society somehow that, 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 uh, that are responsible for the laws that, that govern that. And so it seems to me that there is a direct, I don't know, I'm speculating, but my sense is there, there is a, a conceptual sure. analogy between those, between those two things. It does make some sort of sense as to why he's thinking. There is, a, there's a, there's a path that way. And there's also a path for Roberto another way, which is that he his vision of what law is and what politics is has an essential element of novelty and openness in the future. That is, politics is not just a fight between established menu items, the left, the right, the blah, 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 blah. When politics is truly important and substantial, it involves the invention of new ways of organizing societies, new ideas, new concepts. And he, for the way he thinks about politics, that development of novel solutions to problems 
is the essential thing. He writes about a society being always nonviolent, but just on the edge of boiling over with change, with experimentation. Hmm. Um, and, um, and for him, since he is a philosopher and a very comprehensive philosopher, um, there would be a conflict between that view of society and human potentiality and a view of nature in which everything is limited and the future is completely determined from the present, which is completely determined from the past. So he wanted, I'm speculating, because actually, in spite of all we've talked, we've never had this conversation really? with Roberto. Really? But my sense is that one of the things that he may have speculated about was how to have a view of science and a view of physics and cosmology in which his view of society would have a natural place. Well, one thing actually confused me, just pragmatically, he's at Harvard, right? Yes. So why didn't he go talk to other physicists at Harvard? I mean, there's nothing obviously wrong to talk, talking to you, but um, I'm, I'm wondering why, why he was so... Uh, why, I think, why he came so late to the whole, the, I the think whole this notion is, of this, physics. This is just very much a story about academia and maybe a little bit of a story about Roberto. At the end of the conversation that we had, right. that first conversation, he said to me, as he was saying goodbye to me, he said, this is wonderful. I've been thinking about physics and cosmology for 20 years, but I've never talked with a physicist before. At Harvard. Period. <laughs> and then he said, tell me, by the way, do we have any physicists here at Harvard? Okay. And what's really comedic about that is that if you know the organization of the geography of Harvard, the law school sits on the side of a quad triangle right, here. And the physics right building is, well, not across, but catty corner to the physics building is right here. Oh, that's right, right. And not only that, but the, um, the, phys the law cafeteria um, where the law professors have lunch, although maybe Roberto never goes to have lunch, I wouldn't know, um, is where many of the physics faculty go and have lunch regularly. So when I visited the physics department at Harvard and I've been taken to lunch, we've gone to the law school. Um, but he, he, never, he never met. Has he met them since, by the way? Has he, now that he's been involved well, in these discussions, is he a regular at, at physics colloquia and so forth? Or? I have made some contacts. Um, but um, I tried to introduce him to Nima Arkani Hamid, and they never got together. I think Nima sounded interested, but... Sure, well, Nima's, of course, left Harvard sometime. Yeah. Ago, so, but, uh, um, we, I introduced him to Lisa Randall, and we all had dinner together. Right. Um, I think Roberto's version of philosophical thinking is very different from Lisa's very pragmatic, very sure. phenomenological approach to science. but. Um, we had a fun dinner together. Okay. Um, so we've had some, some interaction subsequently with... Yes, and, and... He knows that there are physicists who are at Harvard now. He's aware of that. And, um, and I arranged for Jean Maguejo when he was visiting at Harvard to, to spend an evening with Roberto. Okay. And which, <laughs> knowing the two of them as we know them, uh, what can I imagine? <laughs> okay, that's but that, 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 that's all. Anyway, so he's 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 aware of that now. So so let me um, so so there were again for me reading your book to to do to do a bit of a recap because I want to start moving into how we can move forwards coherently and I want to start moving just just to give you a bit of a heads up into 
One particular example, I want to talk a little bit more about cosmological natural selection as, as an example of, uh, uh, of a way forward to use some of these ideas. But first, I want to get back to this notion of, well, what is the problem, really? Here's this Smolin guy. He's talking about time has to be real. I don't know what the heck he's talking about. What does he mean by time having to be real? There's a sense of, so there are these, there are a couple of basic basic issues to be able to, to frame this question uh, so that it can be, uh, as far as I as far as I look at it, completely understood by, by anybody who doesn't have to be of a scientific persuasion. So there's this one idea that we have to understand whatever laws we have, we should go further and try to get some understanding of why these particular laws are the way that they are as well. It's not enough to just say what the laws of physics are. That's important and that's essential and that's often very, very difficult. But we also have to try or we should be trying to get some understanding of, of why these are the laws themselves. And there's, there's this sense uh, exacerbated by the many of the issues uh, in contemporary physics today um, uh, of uncertainty and, and, and difficulty in trying to understand things at a cosmological level and, and, uh, and so forth. But there, are, um, uh, there is this sense that, that trying to get an understanding of these laws we have to bear in mind the fact that there is no external position. There is no outside observer. We have to be working within the system yeah. from a cosmological perspective. We can't, we, 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 we can't succumb to this cosmological fallacy of talking about things that we can't possibly even look at as being well-defined, let alone measurable. Right. Um, and so we have to be looking from within the framework of things. And then there is this notion that somehow tied to addressing the concept of why the laws are the way that they are uh, is this notion of evolution of the laws and this notion of, of evolution necessarily implies some sense of, uh, of time being, having some element of reality to it. Is that a, is that a, is that a fair uh, assessment of the situation? Yes. Have I missed something uh, that's, that's a fair assessment. There is one aspect which for me is very important, which is I want an explanation for why the laws of nature are what they are, which is within science, which means it has to be testable, which means it has to put forward predictions which are falsifiable. And the fact that the evolution is hypothesized to have taken place in the past means that there may very well be opportunities to test implications of supposing you make some hypothesis or scenario for it, precisely how that evolution took place that may lead to predictions which are testable because we see the past right. as t things coming from the past. So there's a trace somewhere that we can... We can there's a fossil or a trace. Right. Or, and this is different from other style explanations um, for why the laws are what they are that we observe. One very popular one is to imagine that there are many, many, many universes existing simultaneously. Mm -hmm our universe being very unusual in that population of universes in certain ways. One of them is that life exists and human beings or intelligent beings exist. And that kind of explanation, by contrast, requires speculating about things that are unobservable because we have no causal contact. So you're talking about the anthropic principle. The anthropic seems. principle. So let, let, let's, call, let's call a spade a spade. Uh, let, let, let's, let's. Well, the anthropic principle is, is part of these scenarios because there you have a population of universes which exist simultaneously of which our universe is very unusual 
And the question is, uh, uh, why, why are we in our universe when we could have been in so many other possible yes. universes? Yes. With the, all of these, we should emphasize having different laws. And the anthropic principle says, you find yourself in a version of the universe which has laws which create a universe which is hospitable to life. Right. Otherwise, we wouldn't be asking the question, right. presumably. Right. The, is... pr the problem with the style of, I mean, and that's the logical truism. The problem with the style of explanation is that it doesn't lead to any predictions which are falsifiable because there's no way to test hypotheses about the properties of these other universes because they're not in the past, most of them. Most of them are disconnected from ours causally. Right. So, so, so to summarize, the, uh, I can either have some multiverse idea of taking, taking this, again, this, this, this bird's eye view of looking at all these different possible universes with, with, with all different possible laws uh, and or possible constants to those laws and saying, well, we're over here. And yes, well, we exist over here, but there is, there is a veritable infinity or de facto infinity or almost a whole lot of other possible universes in which we could be and we just happen to be over here. And you say, that's not real science because there's no testable hypothesis that we can have. And right. besides, you're, you're invoking the cosmological fallacy because you're putting yourself in this view way outside of, right. of the system. And then there's another possibility where you can say, oh, well, there are all these different possible universes. Why are we in this possible universe we're in? This is sort of a, a subset of this. Well, that's and then, and then you invoke these tautological aspects and say, well, we're there because we're there. If we weren't there, we wouldn't be asking the question. So obviously the laws that, that, that we're in necessarily support life. And you say, yes, well, that may be true. I mean, obviously it's true that the laws support life, but that's not a testable, reasonable, scientific right. way to go about things because there's no way you could ever be able to, to prove it. You're just restating really the question in a different form. Right. You're not actually right. doing doing real science, and let's roll up our sleeves a little bit. I'm saying, trying to see if I've interpreted what you're saying correctly. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's try to figure out, get some understanding, some mechanism as to why the laws are the way that they are. First of all, what they are, and why the fundamental laws are the way that they are. From within our universe, from everything that we can say, we're not going to rely on fancy jargon or multi-universes or things outside, or things that we can never possibly conceivably test or do any real science. Let's try to come up with some understanding as to why the laws are the way they are within the framework of, of, of where we are now. And this naturally mm -hmm. implies some sense of evolution to you. Uh, uh, and, and this necessarily implies uh, the, the, the fact that time is real. Right, so now that we're getting down to it, I am rolling up my sleeves. There you go. <laughs> which, um, which is a trick I learned from Feynman, from hearing Feynman lecture. Yeah, he, he, I, I didn't realize that he, he, he rolls up his sleeves. He, he, really would, he, really, sleeves. he would do it to make a point, and now we're getting into the detail. <laughs> okay. okay, so let's get into the detail. So first of all, that's okay. That's, that's yeah. uh, what I said was a... Yeah, let me break it down uh, ju just, just, just in a simple way. If we're going to talk about the laws being different, we need to have opportunities for them to be different. Because we don't just want them to be, if there's just one universe and it happens once, and we're talking about a logical possibility that it could have been different, you're not going to develop any explanation for how they came to be unless there's an actual possibility for them to have been different, instantiated somewhere, somehow. Okay. And there are basically two possibilities or two you know 
limits for how to organize it. One of them is to organize them being different in succession in time, so through time, which is succession, which allows, as I said, there to be experimental tests. And the other one is pluralism, is to have a plurality of universes. Okay. Of course, you can have both. Um, but, um, but those are really the, the, the two extremes of, of, of what you can have. Um, and my sense is that there needs to be succession, and in fact, there needs to be not abrupt succession, but slow succession as a natural selection in order that um, there can be accum accumulation of coincidences of special properties. This is important to, let me step, a, let, me, let me start that again. Sure. Um, in order to get into this a little bit more deeply, there are two features of the laws that it's important to explain. One of them is that the laws appear to be very fine-tuned in a way to, an aspect of this is the parameters in the laws, things right. like the strengths of the electric charge, the strengths of the other forces, so the mass of the that we, that we have in, the, in, in our laws. Yeah. The standard model of particle physics has about 29 free constants, which can be fixed. And it turns out that a universe as complex as ours, with a huge variety of stable nuclei, which therefore chemistry with carbon chemistry and so forth, leading to a huge variety of complexity and structure, also so that there are stable stars which burn for a long time, which keep big regions of the universe out of thermal equilibrium. Um, these features of the world depend on some very delicate coincidences and adjustments of these constants. And this is crying out for explanation. The constants don't appear to be random. The laws appear to have very finely chosen constants in such a way that there can be a lot of complexity and structure and that the universe can be out of, away from thermal equilibrium. Right. So, so were it, were, were they, would they have, uh, there's such a very small amount of parameter space that would, would these constants have have, have, reasonably speaking, any other values or random values, we wouldn't have structure, we wouldn't have galaxies, we wouldn't have let, let alone life and, and, and all right. the rest of that in our, in our right. universe. So that's, Even if the laws are the same. Yes, yes. Um, and nothing that we know about the laws constrains the values of these constants. So these do seem to be logical possibilities. The other thing is that many of the ratios of the constants are very large numbers of very small numbers. So there's a huge divergence of scales. Um, written into the laws of nature. And this also goes to create a universe which is very structured and very complex. Okay. Um, stars are much, much, much bigger than nuclei. And that's because the gravitational force is much, 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 much weaker than the forces holding nuclei together. Okay. So how is this related to... to... So both of these features of the laws require explanation. And the anthropic principle gives a restatement of them and says, oh, yes, by the way, notice that the laws are finely tuned so that life can exist. Sure. What I think we need for science to continue is an explanation that doesn't involve pointing to our existence or pointing to life. But so so let's, be com let's be practical. That's a good segue. And so okay. you yourself have given... You mentioned this before, but I want to I want to move into it in a little bit of detail. So you have your your theory of cosmological natural selection, which was inspired by uh, evolutionary theory, which was inspired by many of these things that we had talked about before. 
Um, so first, I'd like to I'd like you to 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 summarize uh, what this theory is, and then give me a sense as to as to uh, what the current state is now. So any use of natural selection involves several elements. There has to be replication of some being, which is there has to be something like a code right. which specifies the properties of a being. It has to be able to reproduce. The code has to be passed on with modification. There has to be something like... So for humans, this would be DNA, presumably, DNA. Or, or for other species, other yeah. animal species, this would be DNA. Um, Vegetables. There, are, there has to be mutations or a sexual recombination of the information. In, right. There has to in, be a mechanism for, for, for change, and there has to be a way that this, this information can be passed on. Yes, and then there has to be a strong dependence of how successfully a creature reproduces on the properties that the creature has. It has to be... This is survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. But it has to be that it actually matters how many legs you have or how good your eyesight is or right. how oily your skin is or something like that. It has to actually matter for the survival of your offspring. And then it just works by logic. Then if you have those elements, the, uh, some offspring... Off, some properties will be very well represented in future populations because they'll give offspring a tremendous selective advantage and that accumulates over many generations and leads right. to the takeover of the population by genes that produce that property. Right. So, or, or whatever substitutes as genes. Right. Right. So my idea, and I did this quite constructively, I asked myself... Um, is there an area of science where questions like how laws are chosen so that the universe comes to be unusually complex, where a question analogous to that is answered? And I said, and I looked around in science, the only place I could find it is biology, where the question is why there are many, many different genes possible, and many, many different possible creatures. Why are the certain ones chosen, and those ones that are chosen are so highly complex and organized? And then, having identified natural selection as a possible analogy, I tried to see if there was a cosmological scenario which would work analogously to it. Right. And, and I came up with several ideas, and this was the one that worked the best. So, what we need for is reproduction. And there was an idea that black holes can lead to new universes. And this is not my idea. Um, the idea goes back to John Wheeler and Bryce DeWitt, who right. were the inventors of the field of quantum gravity right. in the early 1960s. But anyway, that's the idea. But, so that, that's, 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 that's the idea. Okay. Um, and then the analogy needs something analogous to the genes, and I thought we could take the parameters of the laws of physics to be analogous to the genes, especially in that they seem to be finely Fine tuned. tuned. Right. Um, then we need a hypothesis about mutation, and I just made it ab initio. I said, supposing it is the case that when a universe reproduces itself through a black hole so that there's a new universe to the future of that black hole, of the interior of that black hole, that the parameters of the laws of nature are slightly different. So it could be there, there are universes that are uh, being created from these black holes, and it, and, and it could be that, uh, that the laws uh, and or the parameters could be slightly different from the, the, the way that they are. Yes. 
Yes. Okay. And so then yes. what happens? So then you then you 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 move the film forward, and 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 what do you what do you get from from this evolutionary perspective? You get a takeover of the population by universes with laws that lead to much higher productions of black holes than universes with other laws. Right. So, so that's this this. That's what's. That's where they're going. They're being driven. The survival of the fittest is to produce as many black holes as they possibly can. Right. These these guys. Right. So you have. So let me just back up because I think it's it's worth emphasizing uh, to tie into our previous conversation. You have a mechanism. You have a structure to be able to posit a justification and understanding of of the way things are. Again, internally, not not going external, not looking outside, not positing right. not, uh, other right. things outside. You're saying, what can be if what can be the the, the laws, the framework? Looking at it uh, from an internal perspective, here's here are the evolutionary criteria. Here's the way we would go, just as we would if we were looking from an evolutionary uh, framework in a in a population somewhere. How did we get to the way that we are today? Why are there turtles and right. why are there there are people and why is there this and why is there that? And well, turtles are a little extreme. Nobody knows why they're turtles. Okay, I'm, sure. I'm not sure. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> and and so by analogy, you've created this thing on a on a cosmological scale. Yes, yes. And does it make any predictions? It makes a few, a very small number of predictions, but those that it's made have held up. Yeah, and they're and they're fairly concrete, right? I yes. mean, there you could imagine getting back to your idea of what's scientific and what's not scientific. You could imagine that it, it that these that the predictions it made would have falsified the theory. And indeed, several times I thought that the, one of the predictions has been falsified. So, can you tell me a little bit about the the, the types of predictions that uh, the theory makes? So, um, where do most black holes come from in the universe? Most black holes are the result of supernova explosions, which are in turn the result of very massive stars, they're the end point of very massive stars, these supernova explosions. Right. And when the star explodes, most of it is scattered off into back into space, but it leaves behind a remnant of a few times the mass of, a, of the sun. And it turns out that there are two fates for this remnant. If it's light enough, it becomes a neutron star. But there's a limit to how heavy the remnant can be and still be stable as a neutron star. If it's over that limit, it becomes a black hole. Nothing right. can stop the collapse, and it becomes a black hole. Right. So let's call that the upper limit for a neutron star mass. Right. Now, clearly, if you want to make the most black holes, you want to push that limit down as low as, 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 low as possible. Right. So there can be as many black holes produced as possible. Right. As long as you can push it down without inhibiting the processes that make very massive stars. And it turns out that the processes that make massive stars tie down the properties of the, of the light elements and the first generation of particles, the proton, the neutron, and the forces by which they interact. Okay. And the reason is that it's actually a little bit interesting and because of the entropy principle. Um, it turns out that oxygen and carbon play an essential role in cooling the clouds of gas in galaxies that become the mass of stars. If there wasn't carbon and oxygen stably, then 
there would not be so many, nearly so many massive stars. And it's, we can take the detour, but I can explain. It's a detour into astrophysics, all of which I had to learn. Okay. But the reason why I mention that is this, it turns out that the existence of carbon and oxygen are implicated in there being many heavy stars and therefore many black holes. Right. And that provides an alternative explanation for what is usually claimed to be explained by the anthropic principle. Okay. So that's why I mentioned that. Okay. Um, now, I thought you were going to talk about the K-on. I'm about to talk about the K-on. So there turns out to be, as far as I can tell, one way where you can tune the upper, the upper limit um, without affecting the rate of the formation of the massive stars that led to the supernova in the first place. And that's by a particle called the K-on, which is a heavy version of a meson. It's a heavy particle made out of quarks. And let me not go into the sure. physics of it. Sure. But it's, anyway, it's a possibility of... of it's a possibility. Right. And um, therefore, um, the laws of nature, if cosmological natural selection is right, and the universe is extremized or finely tuned for the production of as many black holes as possible, that has implications for the properties of this particle, the kaon, and that has implications for how, what this upper mass limit is. And it turns out that the, that the theory predicts that the upper, this upper limit should be less than twice the mass of the sun. Now, when I first ran through these ideas and talked to experts and read papers by experts on nuclear astrophysics, they were telling me that the upper limit, given that the can had the properties you wanted it to have, was 1.6 times the mass of the sun. Hmm. Meanwhile, there have been a few cases of neutron stars observed with masses with big errors in their measurement, but where the central value was way over 1.6. So if this, if this had held up, if, you had, if, if we had found a neutron star with, say, two solar masses, then, then your theory is well, in trouble. Well, it's a little bit subtler than that, because what happened is that there is a very well-measured neutron star just the last two years which appears to have a mass of 1.9 times the mass of the sun. And I was all ready to write a paper and saying that the cosmological natural selection had been falsified, which would be a great thing to do, to have had an idea which was actually in the domain of quantum gravity and cosmology and was falsified by an experiment would be, it, the only thing that would this be better... How, this is how desperate we are. You see, yeah. you're, you're, you're getting excited when you can actually falsify a theory. Yeah. Yeah, so I was organizing myself to write that paper, and I thought, I'll go back to the literature in the nuclear astrophysics and just make sure that that limit of 1.6 still holds. Right. But it turns out that it didn't still hold, that there had been better calculations. Okay. And the limit was pushed up to 2. Oh, all right. So you need 2.1. Well, you need 2.5. 2.0. You need 2.5, because there are error bars on this thing. Okay. You need 2.5. But anyway, there is, there is a limit. There, and, and whether or not we've, we haven't been able to... So there's a theoretically uh, understood limit, and then with, with the constraints and the error bars, the observational constraints and so forth, there is, there is a possibility someone can come along tomorrow and say, we have detected within a, a good degree of, uh, of, uh, of experimental error a neutron star with, with three solar masses, and then you will say, that's it for cosmological natural yes, selection. Sure. It's, it's, it's done. Because... Yeah. If cosmological natural selection were the case, 
um, then the universe would be because of because of the, the 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 premises in my theory, the universe would be naturally predisposed towards the maximum possible production of black holes. And it's not happening. And it's not happening. It's and, not so, happening. and so that that's not the case. Let me just mention something else. Sure. Just um, there are a bunch of other claims that have been made um, that the theory is falsified that the universe is not extremized to make black holes. And I've looked at these carefully and discussed with experts carefully, and I think that every one of these claims is wrong. This is not the format to go into the technical details, sure. but there are notes in Life of the Cosmos, and there's some recent review papers that I wrote, which do go through all these different claims carefully. And, and Okay. So, Cosmo, but the, 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 it seems to me the summary is, from your perspective, Cosmological natural selection is alive and well. It has yes. not been falsified. Yes. That's point number one. Point number two, or maybe maybe point number one or zero or whatever, is that it is a falsifiable theory. That it is a theory yes. which can be falsified, yes. and it has not yet been falsified, right. and thus uh, it, it, there's no reason to discard it. But it is a theory which which incorporates all of these things in this uh, in time reborn that we're talking about as the way forward so it is a concrete yes. example of the sorts of thing that one might want to do whether or not cosmological natural selection turns out to be the right theory or whether it doesn't turn out to be the right theory it, it is a good example of the sorts of approaches that that you would recommend as being necessary to do is that yes is that, is that, yes. Is that right yes. but here's the thing that 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 confused me a little bit and maybe will confuse other people when they when they when they read it just on a structural level when they read your book so i say okay smolin says that that i have to have a theory which doesn't doesn't revert to any bird's eye view outside right. of the universe to describe things so he does this and he can't tell me so the laws that are governing uh, the universe are, are are perfectly incorporated within my framework of living inside the universe right so I don't succumb to this cosmological fallacy that he's going on about. And it's a theory which tries to, which, or rather which does explain why we have the laws that we do right. because of this black hole stuff. But hang on, isn't that really just imposing another law on the situation? Because what he's accepted right at the very beginning is this idea of evolution. So there is this, there is this idea of evolution and there is this idea that, well, we have to create as many black holes as possible. And isn't that just some kind of meta law on top of all this? And aren't we right back to where we were before about prescribing some, some law like regularity from somehow outside of the system? Yes, of course. So how do I, so, so how, at some deep philosophical level, how is this really any different? So this is what we call with Roberto the meta-law dilemma. Okay. When you say that the laws of nature evolve, they evolve with respect to some meta-law, or they don't. Right. Okay. And here are the two horns of the dilemma. If there is a meta-law, then you might come back and ask, why that meta-law? Why sure. not some other meta-law? And then you're into a regress. If there's no meta-law... Then you need some meta-law meta to yeah, describe why yeah. you have the meta-law. Yeah. If there's no meta-law, then... Um, you, your, your chain of explanation stops. It's just random. So there are two kinds of dilemmas in science and philosophy. There are dilemmas which are real contradictions, which means you have to switch back. You've, you've argued yourself into a dilemma. There's a problem. 
And there are dilemmas which are fruitful because you can change the definition of something, you can have a new idea, a new realization, you can transcend it and move on. Right. And I'm convinced that the Metalaw dilemma is the second kind. Okay. Indeed, I'll say a stronger statement. I'm convinced that the way that cosmology will develop in the 21st century is going to depend on what the right solution to the Metalaw dilemma is. There's from whatever point of view you come from and you face the problems that physics and cosmology face now, you're going to get to the Metalaw dilemma. Okay, so what do you do? So what do, what you, do you do? What do you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you go forwards? You get creative. You try to think of a notion of law, of lawfulness, which is not subject to the Metalaw dilemma. And, I've, and at this point, I don't have anything but examples of ideas or models. Sure. Well, he, yeah, but, that, but that's, that's, I mean, obviously, if you had the answer, you'd have the answer. Right. But I mean, when I, when I say, what do you do, there's a sense of what sort of approach, what kind of toy model, what's going on in your head to, to, to do something, because this seems like a pretty formidable dilemma. You're convinced that we're going to be able to transcend it, and, and, and it's solvable, or at least we're going to get a, get a solution. But... Uh, you know, I was I, I had a conversation with you mentioned Nima before. I had a conversation with Nima Arkani Hamid, and he was saying uh, he he has a very different view than you do. Right. He thinks that that space and time uh, are not fundamental and will will uh, will be viewed both of them as emergent. Uh, well, we agree about three of the four dimensions, uh, right? <laughs> Sure. Although we don't, because he probably still would speculate that there are more. But well, anyway. So. Um, but then I. Anyway, we, we, anyway. So. <laughs> so so his so so his sense is okay. He thinks that space time is emergent. What does he do? How do you how do you he right. says he's, he's, he had a interesting little phrase. He said, "What do I what do I do? I, I come into the office. What do I write down? You know, what is space time? What is space time? What is space time on my little pad of paper all day? How do I actually go forwards? What do I do?" And then he sketched out some kind of a framework or 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 notion of how he might actually be able to make progress. So I'm I'm going to ask you the same question. So you have you have different different views, at least for one out of the four dimensions, or whatever. Um, but but how would you how would you go forwards? What sorts of techniques or approaches or ideas might you have for actually making some kind of progress? Well, I try to have ideas, and I've had four of them that are mentioned in the book about how to go forward. Right. And there's a fifth one that I've been working with a friend on recently, since the book was finished. Right. So I feel it's a very productive, a very fertile question. But did, let me just mention, I don't know which one, I'll mention, um, okay, the principle of precedence. So this is an idea about quantum mechanics, and the idea starts like this. If, in physics, if you repeat an experiment, you get to say, if you set up the same initial conditions for the same system, you get the same response, the same. Now, in classical physics, there's a deterministic prediction of what the response will be. Mm-hmm. In quantum mechanics, there is a statistical distribution of possible responses for the same preparation of the system. Right. So why is that? Well, the traditional view would say there's a timeless law, and the timeless law applies each time you prepare a system the same way. So since the same law applies, since it's timeless, the same outcome applies, or the same statistical distribution of outcomes. But you can actually explain the fact that the present is like the past 
in a more economical way without having to posit a crazy metaphysical notion like timeless laws. Supposing what happens when you present nature with a choice, you prepare a system and then make an experiment and present nature with a choice about how it will respond, is nature looks to the precedents in the past and sees how has nature responded, how has she responded with, to similar challenges. And supposing that the only law is that nature picks randomly from the past precedents. And this would explain why the statistical distribution of outcomes of similar experiments are preserved over But isn't time. that a meta-law itself when you... Yes, so the principle of precedence is then a different kind of metaphysical claim. It's not the metaphysical claim that there exists outside of nature this timeless law, which is making things happen always the same. It's that nature has a, a propensity or a tendency to copy past instances of the same... Of the, of the same thing. Now, that works beautifully, and it turns out to fit into an axiomatic formulation of quantum mechanics, very closely related to the one that Lucy and Hardy developed. Okay. Um, you have to ask, then, why does nature want to make similar things happen from the present and the past? And that's something that I'm working on now. Okay. Um, so so that, least, that, that's, that's a good example right there I think, of, of a concrete approach that you're... Yeah, and about. let me emphasize that a nice feature of that view of quantum theory is it's a view which requires the present to be different than the past. It's not translatable in the future to be different from the present and the past. It's not translatable into a timeless block universe prescription where what's really real is the whole history of the universe at once. Um, time is really playing a necessary role in the present, and the distinction between the present, past, and the future is playing a necessary role in that hypothesis about physics. So I like it, and it's interesting to play with. Right. Okay, good. Let me, let me switch to, so you've answered, answered a concrete question as to how one might be able to go forwards, uh, both practically with specific examples or within a general theoretical framework like cosmological natural selection that you talked about before. I think we've described some of the key issues and problems and approaches that you have. Um, so let me bring it down to, I, I guess there are two other things that, that, that I had wanted to talk about. I want to, I want to answer this question of, well, why should, I, why should I be concerned about this? Why should I care for, for, for two different purposes? From a scientific pr uh, perspective, let's suppose I'm a cosmologist. And I'm, I'm interested in trying to get a model, a framework of understanding some current cosmological mysteries. I, I want to know what dark energy is. I want to know what dark matter is. And here, here's Lee coming and telling me, oh, we have to make sure we don't, uh, we don't get involved in the cosmological fallacy. Oh, let's, let's, let's try to have a, we have to make sure that time is real and so forth. But but I'm I'm working with some uh, I'm working with some concrete models and frameworks to try to to understand uh, some phenomena that's mysterious to me out there. And I might say I might say to you um, th that's all very well and good. This is wonderful metaphysical argument that you have. But I'm in the pits of, of building my models right now. Come back to me when I've when when we've got everything all figured out in that particular way. Um, in the first case, what would you say to somebody who's saying something like that to you? And in the second case, 
are there people who are saying something like that to you, or is your is the response that you're getting to these types of views somewhat different than that? Well, what I would say to somebody like that is that it's a fool's game at this point. That is to carry on as if the cosmological fallacy were not in front of us is foolish because it's not working. And we're just not going to make any progress. We're not going to understand dark energy. We're not going to yes, understand yes, dark matter yes, yes. unless we take these things more seriously. Well, certainly and dark energy. The that we're making. Dark matter. I mean, dark matter could be solved at any time by the discovery of dark matter particles. Right. But dark energy is the ultimate question about why are the laws of nature the way that they are, because it's such an unlikely thing to be the case. Um, and the magnitude of it is so unlikely, is so off any other physical scale. So, um, so certainly dark energy, and certainly, the, let me give an example of a kind of cosmological question which appears unsolvable under the present paradigm or the present kind of approach, sure. which is the universe 14 billion years roughly after the Big Bang, whatever the Big Bang was, is out of thermal equilibrium, is not in thermal equilibrium. There are parts of the universe that are in thermal equilibrium. The microwave background is in thermal equilibrium, but there are big pieces of the universe which are not in thermal equilibrium. Why is this the case? This is an old problem that goes back 150 years. Why is the second law of thermodynamics, which is time asymmetric, true? It's a very good approximation. Why is the universe not in equilibrium but tending towards equilibrium to the future and not to the past when the laws of nature appear to be time symmetric? Right. So this is the, the whole arrow of time business. Why is there an right. arrow of time, right. thermodynamic arrow of time? Right, right. Under the paradigm that the laws of nature are timeless, then the only, which is the standard point of view that people have tried to answer this question from, all the answers point back to the initial conditions, with which were set up in such a way as to be extremely time asymmetric, to be, or another way to say it, to be extremely improbable. Right. Why is that? And that's just another way of. I mean, that's just pushing the question back a little bit further. Right? That's pushing the question back because the question about why were the initial conditions chosen is another one of those questions, like sure. why were the laws chosen? Sure. Okay. But if time is real, then the future just is different from the past. And it's possible to imagine that the fundamental law, the real fundamental law, is time asymmetric. And that that's why, that's the beginning of an explanation of why the initial conditions would appear from a time-symmetric point of view to be so unlikely. But you, you shouldn't have any problems with time. The notion of time asymmetry if you believe that time is real. Right. So that's my point. Yeah. Whereas time asymmetry is very problematic if time is not real. Right. Let me let me move to. So there's all this. Before before you do, there's just, just one point because you're you're asking me to address the, some standard cosmologists. Inflation has m much of the same issues. Inflation requires very improbable initial conditions. Inflation may or may not turn out to be the correct explanation for the cosmic microwave background for the pattern seen in it. But even if it is, and if it is further verified by experiments, the, the tensor modes and so forth in, in the Planck satellite, there's still going to be a question of why are these very improbable initial conditions necessary for inflation to happen. Right. And again, 
you just did a loss from a standard point of view where time is emergent and the, law, the laws of nature are really timeless. And there's a hope to address these issues from a point of view of the laws of nature being fundamentally time asymmetric. So when you explain this to people, when you say exactly what you've said now, what, what is the response from, from most cosmologists or from many cosmologists? Or, or, or what, what has been the response uh, to, by, by the cosmologists whom, whom you've, you've spoken? Well, there's, a, there's a divergent. I mean, some are very enthusiastically in favor. So Jaume Guizhou, who's a, an interesting cosmologist that we know well, right. has been saying things compatible with this for a long time. Um, Another cosmologist, Marina Cortez, that I started to work with recently, we started to work together because her response to reading something I wrote about this was, of course the laws of physics are time asymmetric. You, you had said to me that you, of course. Why, why did she say of course? She had gone to that from her... Okay, that's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just, I'm just right. reporting. Um, right. Uh, you had said something about Martin Rees in a previous conversation, that you had had some productive conversations with him. I can't... Not for quite a long time, but Martin was very supportive of, of the idea of the development of cosmological natural selection, although he's come to the conclusion that it's wrong. I think he's one of the people who believes that... Sure. That the but that, but that's, that those two things aren't incompatible. He may believe this particular yeah. approach is... Uh, this particular theory is wrong, but it doesn't mean the general, your general motivational approach is necessarily wrong. Yeah, I suspect that if we asked him now, that he would say he probably is wrong because he's a big, he's one of the founders and advocates of the anthropic principle. Right. But what Martin is very fair-minded, and what what when I was starting out to just think about cosmology and think about these issues, I was very very appreciative of his conversations, of his efforts to talk with me about cosmological natural selection. He took it seriously enough to spend some time working, now, working is too strong, but talking and examining the idea and its consequences. Right. And that was very encouraging because he's the master. If there's the one person who isn't the master of cosmology, contemporary cosmology, it's him. And sure. for him to take an interest of some kid who was just wandering into the area was um, was very was very supportive. Sure, but he is, as you say, notoriously fair-minded. Let me let me pull back a little bit. Um, we've talked a lot about obviously science and scientists and physicists and cosmologists and what they would think and and whether they would accept or reject some of your premises and and what sort of an impact um, these ideas are likely to have. And that's there's a very good reason for that. Not just because you're a theoretical physicist, but as you said, you were. Uh, driven to these particular conclusions on scientific grounds for mm -hmm. science. It starts, and, and uh, I'm not sure if it ends, but it certainly starts from a scientific uh, conviction born of scientific uh, evidence, where we are today, the problems that we're in, the difficulties, the dilemmas that we have in trying to understand the universe as best we possibly can. But, there, but in your book, you extend the implications of much of what you're talking about, well outside of the scientific realm. So there's this sense that if I'm not a scientist, if I'm some guy who is a, works in a post office, or if I'm a lawyer, or if I'm, uh, if I'm a doctor, well, doctors I suppose could be, anyway, if I'm someone who's yeah. not necessarily, a, certainly a practicing physicist, or even a scientist at all, um, 
these ideas are germane to me. They are relevant to me. They have some particular, uh, they might have some impact on, on my life. We mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation this notion that for most people, yeah. as you said, there is a paradox in, in, in their yeah. views. There is this sense that they believe that they are in time, that they feel time passing, that they have this experience of, uh, of the reality of time. And yet the things that they hold most dear, the, uh, their, their value judgments, their morality, their, uh, their sense of, uh, of equality or egality or, 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 uh, or their, their, their beliefs, uh, and their desires, no, let me, let me rephrase that, their, their, their beliefs and their values are to some extent timeless. They, they appeal to some framework which is, uh, which is unchanging, which is constant, which is outside of their particular worldview. And so um, you go in, in the epilogue of your book, you talk at, at great length about how this notion of the reality of time can have a considerable impact on people well outside of any physics or, or, or strictly scientific notion. There is a sense of, of how um, we might be, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my sense of reading your book, we might be lulled into some almost defeatist sense of, um, of inability to change our future if we think yes. that things are predestined. Yes. Yes. We might accept the inevitability of of some environmental apocalypse brought on by climate change, or we might somehow be, be reluctant to consciously affect the future. We might be defeatist. We might be... Um... But I would put it on the positive side. Okay. Well, well okay. anyway, so, so yeah, I'll, I'll let you put it on the positive side. Let, let me just finish it off. The, the, this sense that for, for most people, um, or, or, or in fact, for everyone, this notion of the reality of time is actually very important and plays a, can play a very meaningful role in their, their approach to so many different things that are in the, the public consciousness and that affect us all. Yes. Yes. So uh, I'm a person as well as a scientist. And... <laughs> You're a person I... as well as a scientist. <laughs> Maybe we should just start that again. No, I thought that was great. <laughs> uh, I mean, I live, I live in the contemporary world, and I'm concerned about the crises that all of us are concerned about, and I have all the human concerns as well, being a person through life, finding my way through life, trying to be wise, trying to be a good person. And, um, and as I started to develop these views, about time and the openness of the future, um, I found myself reflecting on first personal issues, and there's just a little bit of that in the book compared to what there might have been. So for wisdom or not, I took most of that. Compared to what there was, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> I took most of that out. Right. But, um, but there's some of that in there. And I also, there's, um, I address climate change, I address economics. Why? These were two issues that I worked on in the past three, four years. Um, five years, actually, 2008, I started working on economics. Um, and I was brought in to work on economics, drawn in, let me start again. I was drawn in to work on economics by people in finance, in business, who wanted some scientists to get involved and try to straighten things out during the economic crisis. And after some experience with that, which was very mixed, um, 
in terms of, but, but it gave me an opportunity to understand the science of economics and the standard neoclassical theories of economics, the standard theories of finance. Um, since I was thinking about the nature of time and the reality of time at the same time, I began to make connections and I began to see the way in which the view of nature is coming from Newton had influenced the structure of neoclassical economics and modern finance. And, um, so they were making some of the same mistakes. They're making some of the same mistakes, much more costly there. Um, and there, well, a thing that was very impressive is that there is in the, there, there's a basic misunderstanding in the economic literature, which goes like the following. There's this standard neoclassical theory of economics, and it has a notion of equilibrium. And it claims that an economic system left to itself without regulation, without too much interference from government, will we'll come to... We'll find its equilibrium point. We'll find its equilibrium point. And that's the point where the most wealth is generated. That's the, there's this Pareto optimization theorem that nobody can be made more happy, nobody can get more of what they want without somebody getting less in, in, in equilibrium. There's then an interpretation, which is a misunderstanding, that therefore laissez-faire capitalism is the best way to organize society, it, it, that, that this science supports the kind of libertarian view of, of economics and regulation. The mistake is that that's only true if there's only one equilibrium. But in fact, in the very models that which you can prove that there is an equilibrium, models of markets, there actually are generically many equilibria. And so in the actual models, if you study them, you realize that there are many equilibria. And so and each one, in each one, the economic forces are, are, are balanced. In each one, the optimization is done of happiness and so forth of all the consumers. And, but they're very different. They, they're very different societies. And it and, depends on, this is where you also talk about path dependence, right? Because yes. And which one you're in then, even assuming that, that you buy the assumptions of these models as applicable to reality, it matters which one you're in depends on which history you came from, so that there's a strong dependence in time and in history. Which again argues for this notion of, uh, of, of change, of evolution, of taking, taking this reality of time seriously, yeah. if you look at it properly. Now here's the thing. This fact of there being many equilibria was known to specialists in the field since the early 1970s. 1970s, wow. 1970s. There's a theorem in 1972-1973, Mandel, Sonnenschein, and somebody whose name I forget, um, proved that there are generically many equilibria. Um, and Brian Arthur, who was, who was a very distinguished econom economist, who had been a tenured professor at Stanford at the time he started to think about this, de developed the notion of path dependence in economics um, way back, um, I think in the late 70s or early 80s. And, um, and these were specialists inside the profession. But so why, somehow, why would they listen to that? Yeah, so, and that's the question. Somehow my sense is that because the timeless point of view is so dominant, and the idea that a system, to, to explain it, you have to explain it through its history, is so um, 
in contradiction to this timeless way of thinking, that not enough attention was paid to the point of view that economics is path dependent, that that economics is that economics systems are very heavily or markets are very heavily dependent on how they evolve, on choices made, so forth. Let alone the thing that becomes obvious once you say it, which is that there's no way to predict the future of an economic market because there's no way to predict the innovations that will happen, there's no way to predict the inventions that will happen. Nobody is, you know, somebody trying 25 years ago to predict the future of the telecommunications markets would not have anticipated that everybody has their phone in their pocket, right. let alone that there are now large parts of the world where banking is done through credits on cell phones. So this idea that we can just stand outside and have some timeless uh, f uh, framework, economic law that will necessarily drive us to equilibrium in, 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 some, in some regular way, some path-independent way, doesn't even matter what the various conditions are, is just wrong and, and, uh, and, and, and affects us all in a very deep way. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and I, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for the economic crisis and some of them are just plain greed, some of them are criminality, there, you know, some of them are inattention, but there was a systematic effort by people with a laissez-faire ideology to undermine the regulatory environment right. for financial markets, and they were supported by this theory by right. misunderstanding. They of were their they were able theory. to be buttressed from a, from a, a formal framework that said that they were able to give some mathematical credence or some some formulaic credence to their their particular ideology. Right. Right. And so that's one. And then when I got um, discouraged from arguing with economists who are even more than physicists, um, impatient with outsiders and uninterested in, in, in heterodox or outside perspectives, um, I thought I should take that portion of the time that I'm spending trying to help out with economics and do something for society. And of course, climate change was the natural thing. And some of the people I was working with on economics and were political scientists, Tad Homer Dixon and his colleagues. And so I started to work on climate change. And I was struck again by the same thing, that there were some basic misunderstandings um, which I could trace back to an insufficient appreciation of the openness of the future and the reality of time. Um, one of them is that um, if you believe that, that the world is essentially timeless, you believe that the categories by which we organize our thinking about things are also timeless. And that therefore, um, the choice that we face in the future involve picking from established menus do you want the liberal menu, the conservative menu, right. etc.? And that's not going to change. That's not going to fluctuate over time, according to this right. view. And in particular, they're not going to arise new perspectives, new right. points of view. Right. And this is also, of course, some of this I get from Roberto, who is a politician, and in his role as a politician, he's always pushing for the invention of new perspectives, new points of view, new experimentation. But say, said, looked at the problem of climate change, let me just mention one thing that people on all sides of the issue seem to be agreeing on, which I think are wrong. One of them is that it's an environmental issue. I think it has nothing to do with the environment, or very little to do. It's not an issue about preserving the environment. It's an issue that the energy use and the use of resources of the economy 
has grown and is going to grow. We can't tell the Chinese and the Africans and the Indians right. not to become middle class. Sure. sure. Okay. To the point where it begins to strongly perturb the natural cycles that regulate the climate. And we cannot go backwards. This is, it's right. not an option to say we're just going to preserve the climate. So you have to look in a new framework. You have to, you have to look under new, new conditions completely. You can't yeah. say it should be this way or it might have been that way. This is what it is. We, we have to find some new way in which the economy and technology and the climate can reach a kind of symbiosis. That is, we have no alternative but to become responsible for the climate. We can't back off. We could back off at the risk of half of humanity dying off and becoming poor. Sure, but we can't realistically back off. That's not a solution, and, and, right. and, and we have to rethink things. Right. And among the things that, is, that might get rethought is, is the category of what's natural and the category of what's artificial. And again, most of the thinking of environmentalists is that these things, have, these things are fixed categories. You have to keep them separate. You have to keep snowmobiles out of the national parks. You have to keep oil drilling out of the mm. delicate Arctic regions and so forth. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm, I'm also an environmentalist, I'm not saying those aren't important issues, no, but that's not the climate issue. No, I understand, I understand what you're saying. But, but I guess what, there is something that confuses me, which is maybe we're, maybe, I will put it to you that it's, it's possible that in trying to address all these issues, uh, you might be biting off more than you can chew. And so here's, well, here's, is, here's what I mean by it. Sorry, go ahead. It is just the epilogue. It is. <laughs> no, and, I, and I, think that's, I think that's great. Um, but I, I guess I'm, I'm, I know you're a passionate person, and I think, it's, I think that's fantastic. And, I, and I, I know you're somebody who also likes to connect different worldviews and different pictures, and you're, you're like any creative, scientifically oriented person, you're looking for patterns. And so it's not unusual for you to say, hey, this, this, this mindset, this mentality that I see as being detrimental and counterproductive to movement uh, to, to, to develop a better cosmology is actually not that dissimilar to what some of these economists are, are saying and doing, or maybe not that dissimilar to what some of these, uh, uh, what, what, what climate change people are, are somehow not fully appreciating or failing to take into account. And, and, and connecting those dots and making those, those links is completely natural and reasonable. But it, it brings forth the question to me of, what are, what are we trying, what are you trying to accomplish with this book? What sort of impact are you actually looking to have both with the scientific community and with members of the general public? If I'm Joe Public, what, what are you hoping that I will get out of reading your book? I hope inspiration. I hope that a member of the public um, is encouraged in the sense of the word of gain courage by the point of view that the future is open, that human beings have the capability of having real agency in the world, of inventing new solutions to new problems. Um, I found it acting with myself. I mean, just to say, you know, as, as I started to approach the climate change issue, right. um, I found the idea that this problem requires breaking with the categories that are holding up the discussion, that the discussion is aimed at, is built around and inventing new categories. Very encouraging, because there's such a stalemate. And, um, and in my own collaborations on, on the problem of climate change, I found it 
so encouraging to think, oh, we don't have to be stuck with this versus that, the economy versus the climate, the artificial versus natural. We don't have to be stuck with the global average temperature as the category that everything relates back to, because right. after all, the global average temperature is a tremendous abstraction. Nobody feels the global average temperature. And right. if you say to people... Well, the global average person does, I suppose, but... Right. If you say to people, <laughs> the, the global average temperature is going to go up two degrees, they say, who cares? If every day was two degrees warmer, nothing would be any different. Right. And so, in, in order to move the discussion forward in a way that's constructive, you need new categories for the discussion. And even if just at a metaphorical level, the story that I'm telling in the book encourages people to look for, to do what I, I draw a contrast between what I call thinking in time and thinking outside of time. Right. And you're thinking outside of time when you imagine that the categories for the solution of every problem already exist, and it's just right. a question of choice. You're thinking in time when you recognize the human beings have the creative agency to actually invent new ideas and new solutions to problems. Because the future hasn't been determined. There, there, yes. there, is, there is no reason for that. In fact, the onus is on us because time is real. The onus is on us to roll up our sleeves, as it were, and um, come up with creative yes, solutions yes. That, that, are, are, that, are, that are appropriate and befitting the problems we have now, right. as, a, as opposed to 200 years ago or, or maybe even 100 years from now. Sure, sure. So, so that's, that's the level of inspiration that you, you, you'd like to convey. I, I guess I would put it as a combination of recognition of, of, the, of the potential that nothing is predetermined, and, and also a sense of trying to get out of, related to that, a sense of trying to get out of our closed-mindedness. And sometimes one doesn't even realize one's being closed-minded. You talked about pre-established categories. There is this sense of, uh, it has to be this way or the other way. You you can't be environmentally sensitive and 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 understand the the economic needs of society at the same time. These these old uh, cliches and categorizations, um, which I'm not sure if they were ever true, but they're, they're certainly not objectively true in any particular sense. Yeah. So that's that's what you'd like to accomplish for the for the man on the street. Plus, I would imagine, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine a certain understanding of contemporary issues in cosmology, yes, much sure. like uh, the, the, the trouble with physics in terms of your perspective as to, gosh, we're in a bit of a mess. Here's why I think we're in a bit, bit of a mess, and here's how I think we can get out of this particular Well, this mess. is much more about how I think we can get out of it. And what about to your, to your scientific colleagues, uh, to your colleagues in physics? I'm posing new questions. I'm saying... A key question is, what is a cosmological theory? What is it to understand nature at the level of the whole universe as the whole universe together? Um, the cosmological fallacy means that you cannot do this by just taking up the kind of laws that we have and scaling them up. We need very different kind of theories. How do we construct those theories? I try, and I think it's chapter 11, to give some principles. Right. How And those, of course, are open for discussion, but the question is not being asked by very many people. Most of my colleagues are just trying to commit the cosmological fallacy by taking laws as we have them and scaling them up. Um, so I want to encourage and inspire people in, in the sciences and in cosmology and fundamental physics to look at the problems we face in these particular different ways, to ask different questions, to get unstuck, 
on the questions that were that we've been stuck on. Um, there are uh, there are other issues. I mean, um, the questions for the foundations of quantum mechanics, for example. Um, if there is a cosmological theory that's very different from our current theories, it's also not quantum mechanics. And that implies that quantum mechanics is an approximation right. to something that is not quantum mechanics that could hold on a global or a cosmological scale. And I think that's the right way to solve the problems in the foundation of quantum mechanics, not by taking quantum mechanics and trying to apply it to larger and larger systems. That implies that there has to be some point where quantum mechanics breaks down. Sure. And what's very exciting is that experiments having to do with quantum information, quantum computing, are pushing up very rapidly the scale over which quantum effects are studied in scales of complexity of systems. And in a couple of different approaches which come out of the thinking in the book about quantum mechanics that I developed, um, there is immediate clash with the expectation that quantum mechanics will apply on, on systems which are large enough to be complex enough to be novel. So there is a real, uh, um, there, there is a real possibility of inventing new approaches to quantum mechanics that are testable now and whose difference between quantum mechanics is testable now or testable soon. Okay. So I, I wanted to ask you one final question about this because some scientists, when one talks about the messages that you have to the scientific community and the impact that you'd like to have for the scientific community. And you, you know this uh, just as well, if, if, not, if not much better than I do. But some members of the scientific community are just on principle opposed to the idea of having anything substantive to say to other members of the scientific community through a popular book. There is this sense of, if you want to critique my work or if you want to have something scientific to say, you should say it in the proper scientific format and you shouldn't write a popular book that is trying to do this, that, and the other thing. And why are you even trying to write a popular book talking about your particular ideas? Um, have you, you've already been, so, you've already been talking about some of these ideas, uh, presumably in, in, in giving, giving talks to members of the scientific community and so forth. Have you, have you had any, any sense of pushback from some scientists about the idea that you're talking about things that go beyond, sometimes beyond a strict scientific sense? So let me answer that in two ways. So one of them is that absolutely the, the ideas proposed in the book, which are really ideas about physics, scientific ideas, should be presented first in papers and are, right. and have been. Right. So there's, uh, I don't know how many, two dozen papers over the last number of years, which explore different aspects of, this, of these ideas. And the parts which are critiques of other directions of work, for example, of the anthropic principle, are in scientific papers sure. and journals and conference proceedings and so forth. Um, and there has been dialogue about them with, with people in those fields. Um, but the big vision behind the book is not something that can be either developed, thought through, or conveyed in a scientific paper. It's not the right format. A book is the right format to develop these ideas. There are different kinds of popular quote books. There are popular books which are popularizations of existing scientific discoveries of scientific achievements. There are now a spate of books coming out about the discovery of the Higgs boson, for example. Those are popularizations, they're journalistic. 
Um, what I'm doing here is addressing the public, yes, but through a format where I'm addressing simultaneously other experts, other scientists, as well as philosophers of science. And I think that that's completely legitimate. Um, John Brockman, who is my literary agent and a great um, organizer of, of many things, scientific and bringing the scientific to the public, when we first spoke and he proposed that I write books, um, he's, he said, what you want to do, journalists do popularization, he said, what, you, what he wants a scientist to do is address other scientists, but in a way in which the public can look over the shoulders as we have the discussion. Right. And there is a literature like this, sort of serious natural philosophy, you might call it, to use an old name for it. Um, the biologists have been arguing with each other through books about what natural selection really means, how it works, for years. Richard Dawkins, Lynn Margulis, Stephen Jay Gould, um, etc. I mean, these are people who addressed each other provocatively through books that were, quote, popular books, some of them very successful. Um, the founders of quantum mechanics um, argued with each other through books which had a broad readership. Bohr, Einstein, Heisenberg, etc., Schrodinger, all, they had an argument about the interpretation of the nature of quantum mechanics, and they carried it out in scientific meetings, in scientific papers, and through books that were out, that were accessible to a large audience. So, so there's this, nothing new about doing this. Did this work with you for the trouble with physics? When you wrote the trouble with physics, did you, did, did, did you get the reaction that you had hoped for? Was the dialogue that you had uh, anticipated um, bringing to light, was, was, was it there in, in, in fact? Did, did it come out the way you had, way you had wanted? Was it, was it effective? Was it... In part, um, and in part not. Um, the most disappointing part was, which um, I probably should have anticipated, and, but didn't at all, was that some people would be actually angry about it, some people in string theory would be angry about it to the point where um, it was criticized um, by people who didn't read it, there were discussions about it online, there were lots of blogs about it, there were conversations about it which were recorded online. It was remarkable that people very passionately opposed what they thought were the arguments and conclusions of the book, but which were not in fact the arguments and conclusions of the book. Mm. Um, this, I could be cheeky and say this proved one of the points of the book, um, which is when communities may, may get, be so hermetically self-involved that they have what you would call groupthink, what the sociologists of knowledge call groupthink, um, and they develop mechanisms to repel critique by outsiders. Um, of course, I'm not an outsider. I'm both an outsider and not. I mean, I'm... I'm have gone in and out of these communities, these different communities, in string theory and quantum gravity and so forth. So that disappointed me, but in the end, that's years ago now, and that's forgotten. Well, the reason I'm asking is if, getting, getting back to this notion of, uh, of, of why you're writing and what effect you'd like to have. So let me give a positive instance. The most interesting responses to the trouble with physics, for me, came from scientists and academics in other fields who many of whom got in touch very excitedly 
from biology, neuroscience, computer science, literary studies, and say, yes, you know, you have these mechanisms you've talked about, which you illustrated with string theory, um, which close down discussion and, and narrow the, the range of topics which are, which are well supported, goes on in my field too, and we have the same sociological issues. And in fact, why I got invited to collaborate on projects in economics and finance was because people in those areas read the book and called me, two people in particular, and said, you know, if you think physics is tough, you have no idea what it's like to be a heterodox person trying to push forward a new framework for, ec for economists. So and these were people, again, in, in either the financial world or the economics world, who had some standing in those worlds, but were very frustrated. So it could be the case, uh, hopefully not, but it might be the case, that Time Reborn will have a greater impact on people outside of cosmology and outside of fundamental physics than, than inside. We, we, one, one, one hopes not, but one, one never knows. And I guess that's part of the justification for you to be able to, as I said earlier, connect the dots and look at the broader implications of the reality of time than, than just our universe, as it were. Well, but you know, let me tell you what my attitude to the trouble with physics was, and I think it's going to be the same as my attitude here. I didn't become a professional sociologist of science. I didn't become a professional critiquer of string theory. There are people in both those niches. Um, I wrote the book. I made it the best book that I could, and then I moved on. And, not, and I'm very happy with what's in the trouble with physics. There's, there are, of course, some things that I would change six years later, but there's not a lot. There are a few things that where, where, where I would change things and improve things, but there's not a lot. But I don't involve myself. I, don't, I dropped out of all the debates. No, I'm just talking about what, what your, what your, I hope this doesn't come across as an attack, because that's, no, not, no. That, that's not the way it's meant. I'm trying to get a clear sense of what your expectations are, and what I don't, you, what so you, what I'm what saying like is really, I, I, well, I, I, I like this book, I worked, I feel like I made the best book of its kind um, that I am capable of making. It's the best book for a broad audience on physics and cosmology. Um, I like it a lot. I worked really hard on it. Um, I will be very pleased if it's appreciated. Um, but um, I'm, for me, the challenge is then what? No, well, then, I, then you. I don't understand why the challenge is then what. I mean, then what is to is to is a continuation of what you're doing, right? I mean, right. you're a practicing theoretical physicist. But, but not only that, here I have a book where I've laid out a problematic and laid out some principles to address it. Right. And now it's my job to develop the science, to see if the science can be developed. And if it can't be, then all the beautiful language in the book, whatever beautiful language there is, all the work that went into it will be a moot point. Why will it be a moot point? I mean, perhaps... Perhaps you might, let's imagine that cosmological natural selection is wrong. Let's it's imagine, most likely. But whatever, let's imagine that it's wrong. And let's imagine that you don't make any, uh, any great contribution from now on in, in theoretical physics. You decide to become a professional basketball player or something, okay? So you, 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 you or, or, or whatever, you lie on a beach somewhere. You don't do any more physics, okay? Let's just imagine that for the sake of discussion. But let's imagine that Time Reborn inspires 
one, two, a whole new generation of people to say, to say, yeah, but so, so I don't think it, it's necessarily a moot point is what I'm saying. I, I think in terms oh. of, of, of the impact that the, the, that the book might be able to have, of course, you are trying as a physicist, like any other physicist, to try to do your job to push our understanding right. of the universe forwards. But it's certainly conceivable to me that scientifically an impact that, that might occur is that some, some people who are now in graduate school, in kindergarten, who knows, uh, later take into careful appreciation and study what it is that you've said. And, let, and, let, let me try to say something if it doesn't sound too arrogant, okay? Because this is something that I formulated a long time ago. Okay. Well, in fact, when I was 17 there and I was reading Einstein, and I thought, am I going to do this thing? And as I started to read more of the history and read where Einstein came from, I discovered Mach right. a couple of years, two or three years later. And I hope this doesn't sound ridiculous, but I, I, when I was reading Mach, I said to myself, it's not possible to be Einstein. Einstein was once in 400 years or 500 years or something like that. It's not possible to imagine being Einstein and having that impact on science. But maybe it's just possible to be ambitious enough to imagine being Ma and writing something that will inspire some future Einstein. Yeah. So I'm happy with that if that happens. That's a, that's a, that's a fairly significant accomplishment. <laughs> so If it happens. If it happens. It's a good goal. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't say that should have said differently? Or is there anything you wanted no, to say that... I'm happy. You're happy. I'm, I'm happy, happy too. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Physics, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Freeman Dyson, Jenny Nelson, Claudia Duram, and Jill Tarter. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. Two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.